Yep, it's that time once again. Hello, everybody. Leah Laporte here with the best of 2022 Security Now, next. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 903 for Tuesday, December 27th, 2022. The year's best. Security Now is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like walking your dog in public without securing them on a leash. For three extra months free with a one-year package, go to expressvpn.com slash security now. And by Collide. Collide is an endpoint security solution that uses the most powerful untapped resource in IT, end users. Visit collide.com slash security now to learn more and activate a 14-day free trial today. No credit card required. We're going to let Steve take a week off, a much-needed week off, and talk about some of the biggest stories of the year from 2022. This actually is a good show to listen to or to give people who haven't heard Security Now to give them an idea of the breadth uh, of content and the depth of content with everything Steve does, starting with perhaps the worst exploit, if you could pick one, the worst exploit of 2022, Log4J. Okay, so many security firms are tracking threat actors who immediately and predictably jumped aboard the Log4J bandwagon. You know, it's been a it's been a feeding frenzy for the security firms to help bring this home and make it a bit more real. I wanted to share a piece of Checkpoint Research's reverse engineering work on a typical threat the internet is now facing. Um, I've got. For anyone who wants more detail, as always, a link in the show notes. Uh, last week, Checkpoint documented the efforts of an of an Iranian government-backed group known, again, not just Iranians, Iranian government-backed group known as APT-35, also known as Charming Kitten, TA-453, and Phosphorus. This group started widespread scanning and attempts to leverage the log4j flaw in publicly facing systems only four days after the vulnerability was disclosed. And, you know, all the bad guys knew now that this was public, it was, you know, it was going to get remediated at some speed. The point being, let's be first, you know, get in there before that gets before the, the, the back doors get closed. Um, since this actors, this particular actors setup was hurried, they simply grabbed one of the publicly available open source GitHub hosted JNDI exploit kits. Yes, they were on GitHub initially, but that kit has been removed from GitHub due to its enormous popularity following the vulnerability emergence. Uh, you know, why bother reinventing that particular wheel when time is of the essence? They also based their operations upon their pre-existing infrastructure rather than like creating a whole new one. And that infrastructure was already well known to Checkpoint, thus making its detection and attribution all the easier. In the show notes, I have a flow chart which shows the path that the exploit takes. Uh, and it could hardly be any easier or direct. First, 
the attackers send a crafted request to the victim's publicly facing internet exposed resource, whatever it is, a server of some sort. In this particular case, the weaponized payload was sent in through either the user agent or the HTTP authorization headers. Remember that all that needs to happen is that something somewhere that's Java-based logs part of the query that contains this weaponized string. In order to log the query, Log4j examines what it's logging, sees a JNDI component, and goes about its job of obtaining the content from the LDAP URL contained in the query, which is being logged. So, the vulnerable machine, as as has been instructed to do, basically, although not after it's been patched, but until then, reaches out to a what they labeled in their diagram a log4j exploitation server which assembles the and returns a malicious Java class, which will be executed on the vulnerable machine. The class runs a PowerShell command with a base64 encoded payload. And I actually have a picture of the actual payload, uh, the exploit dot uh, command, PowerShell, and then the encoded payload. That PowerShell command downloads a PowerShell module from an Amazon S3 bucket URL, and it actually is HTTP colon slash slash uh, s3.amazonaws.com slash doc library sales forward slash test dot text and executes it. And we have a picture of that in the show notes, the actual thing that's downloaded. The downloaded PowerShell payload is the main module that's then responsible for basic communication with the command and control server and the execution of additional modules which may be received. So the main module performs the following operations. It validates the network connection. Upon execution, the script waits for an active internet connection by by repetitively making HTTP POST requests to Google.com with the parameter high equals high HI equals HI just to see if it can succeed. That's how it detects whether or not it's got an internet connection. Assuming that it does, uh, then it knows that. It also performs basic system enumeration. It collects the Windows OS version, the computer's name, and the contents of a file ni.txt in app data, in the app data path. The file is presumably created and filled by different modules that will be downloaded by the main module. It then retrieves the command and control server's domain. The malware decodes the command and control domain retrieved from a hard-coded URL located in the same S3 bucket from where the back door was downloaded. So the, the, the bad guys have dynamic control over that by deciding what goes in this AWS bucket. It also retrieves, decrypts, and executes follow-up modules. Okay, so once all the data is gathered, the malware starts communication with the command and control server 
at the domain, which it determined by pulling that from the Amazon AWS uh, cloud bucket. Um, and it does that. It com communicates with the command and control server by periodically sending HTTP post requests. I mean, none of this is high tech. None of this is rocket science. You know, this is easy to do, which is why this terrified everybody so much. So this thing sends HTTP post requests to a pre-configured URL with each post request containing information from which to build a session key, the OS version, the computer's name, and the contents of that file in the uh, app data directory. So that ends up being something unique, which it uses to identify itself each time. And I think, as I recall, it puts it in a session header in the post query. In response to the command and control servers receiving these, these post requests, uh, it can either choose not to respond in which case the script will keep sending post requests periodically to continue to provide the server with a stream of response opportunities, or the server will return a base 64 encoded string. Now, just as a reminder, base 64 is a means for sending binary data over an ASCII channel, that is over a text-only channel. Groups of three 8-bit binary bytes, so three 8-bit binary bytes is 24 bits, they're regrouped from three 8-bit bytes to four 6-bit bytes. Six bits can have 64 combinations. So that, so we take the lower and the upper alphabet gives us two times 26 characters or 52 characters. We add the 10 decimal digits. That brings us up to 62 characters. And then we toss in two additional ones, the plus and the forward slash, which brings us to 64. So, so in groups of three, binary is taken from the source binary. The, the, those, those 24 bits are regrouped into four characters each can each of each one of 64 different possibilities that's then all munged back together and sent down to the client which reverses the encoding process to restore the original binary this allows the malicious server to squirt anything it wants into the victim machine that's making the queries the malicious the, the modules downloaded in this fashion are either powershell or C-sharp scripts. The modules sent by the command and control server are executed by the main module, with each one reporting data back to the server separately. So that the original module comes in, looks around, sets up shop, figures out who to talk to, initiates the dialogue, and does that periodically. If in response to one of its of its multiple post queries, it receives a blob of base 64, it goes, oh, OK, something to do. It decodes it back into whatever it was before, you know, removes the base 64 encoding. Uh, we know that that's going to be a PowerShell or a C sharp script and runs it at that point that subsidiary module takes off on its own and it establishes its own communication directly with the command and control server. 
the command and control cycle continues indefinitely, which allows the threat actors to gather data on the infected machine, run arbitrary commands, and possibly escalate their actions by performing a lateral movement or executing follow-up malware such as uh, ransomware. In other words, you know, this thing can do anything it wants to once it gains a, a, a foothold. So the modules, every module is auto-generated by the attackers based on the data sent by the main module. Each of the modules contains a hard-coded machine name and a hard-coded CNC domain. Every module checkpoint observed contained a block of shared code, which makes sense because there's a bunch of stuff that they're all going to do regardless of their specific function. And that is encrypting the data to be sent, exfiltrating the gathered data through a post request or uploading it to an FTP server, that also happens, and sending execution logs to a remote server. In addition to this, each module performs one specific job. That is, in addition to those things they all have in common, Checkpoint retrieved and analyzed modules for six different functions. Listing installed applications, that is, applications installed on the machine, taking screenshots, listing the running processes, getting OS and computer information, executing a predefined command from the command and control server, and then finally, cleaning up any traces created by any of the other modules. The applications module uses two, me two methods to fetch and return a list of installed modules. It can either enumerate the uninstall registry values or use the management, uh, the Windows management instrumentation command uh, in order to uh, get an enumeration. It gets those, it, uh, encrypts them, and sends them back to, to headquarters. The screenshot module... Uh, they found both C-sharp and PowerShell scripts for the screenshot. They both have the capability to capture multiple screenshots at specified intervals and upload the resulting screenshots to an FTP server whose credentials are provided by the script. The C-sharp script uses a Base64 encoded PowerShell command to take the screenshot from multiple screens. So again, you might have this thing in your computer, not know it. You're doing things, and this thing is spying on you, sending shots of your screens back to headquarters. The processes module obtains a list of the machine's running processes using the task list command, gathers them, encodes them, sends them back. The system information module contains a bunch of PowerShell commands. What was interesting was that in the instances that Checkpoint uh saw the bad guys had commented out all of these potential sources of information. Uh, they just weren't using it. Uh, this told Checkpoint that this whole campaign was hastily assembled since the entire, uh, you know, as we know, attacker community was well aware that systems would be closing their doors very quickly. So there were, there was like all these different uh, suggestions of, you know, the moment this thing went public, the attackers jumped on it and said, let's quickly get something together th that we can exploit this with. And finally, we have the command execution module, which 
uh, is able to essentially download and execute any actions, any commands that are provided by uh, the command and control server. They saw, for example, listing the contents of the C drive root, uh, listing the specific Wi-Fi profile details using uh, NetSH, uh, the WLAN uh, subcommand of that, uh, and also listing all the drives using get PS drive, a, a PowerShell uh, enumerator. And finally, the cleanup module. It's dropped after the attackers have finished their activity and want to remove any traces that they've been inside the system. The module contains cleanup methods for persistence-related artifacts in the registry and the startup folder, uh, you know, any files created and any running processes. It contains five hard-coded levels of sort of like stages of cleanup, depending upon the stage of the attack, uh, each one serving a different purpose. Checkpoint said that the design and the intent of the cleanup module uh, made it clear that the threat actors want to keep the infection on the machine, first of all, for as long as they deem necessary, but then after, once their goal has been achieved, they want to disappear without a trace so that, you know, no one believes that there, that an attack occurred. As for attribution, of course, we know attribution of network uh, remote attacks often falls somewhere between difficult to impossible, but not so in this case. Most advanced persistent threat actors put some effort into making sure to change their tools and their infrastructure to avoid being detected in the first place and to make attribution much more difficult if they were detected. And in fact, uh, you know, we know that the, the solar winds attacks were famous for like really working to obscure the path by which the infection happened if it were to be discovered. However, APT 35 does not conform to this behavior. Apparently, the group is famous within the cybersecurity community for the number of operational security mistakes they've made in previous operations. And they tend not to put too much effort into changing their infrastructure once it's been exposed. So it's little wonder that their operation, as Checkpoint has detailed it, has significant overlaps in the code and the infrastructure, which previously identified the activities of APT-35. Uh, as for code overlaps, four months ago, in October of 2021, Google's TAG team, remember their threat analysis group, published an article about APT-35's mobile malware, you know, because Google and Android. Even though the samples Checkpoint analyzed um, uh, were PowerShell scripts, the similar meaning, you know, PowerShell as opposed to Android. So uh, Windows only the similarity of coding style between them and the Android spyware that Google attributed to APT 35 immediately caught checkpoints attention. For one thing, the implementation of the logging functions was identical between the Android app, which Google analyzed, and this present campaign's PowerShell modules, which use the identical logging format, even though the commands are commented out and replaced with another format. The fact that these lines were not removed outright 
checkpoint felt might indicate that the change was done only recently and the syntax of the logging messages themselves being logged is identical. As for infrastructure, uh, both then and now campaigns, October and now, apparently use the same server-side infrastructure. When a client posts data to a remote HTTP server, the server-side path of the query is called the API endpoint. Google's mobile analysis and checkpoints both revealed the use of the common endpoint slash API slash session. Now, okay, that's not a high entropy name. Could have just been a collision of, of you know, convenience. Uh, uh, but checkpoint felt encouraged by the observed overlap, and they stated in their report that other API endpoints are similar but not entirely identical due to the differences in the functionality of the platform. So it didn't make sense for them to be completely identical. Checkpoint also observed that not only are the URLs familiar, but the command and control domain of the PowerShell variant responds to the API requests that are used in the mobile variant. <laughs> this suggests similar, if not identical, server-side support for both campaigns. So Checkpoint concluded its report by observing that every time there's a new published critical vulnerability, the entire InfoSec community holds its collective breath until its worst fears come true. Scenarios of real-world exploitation appear, especially by state-sponsored actors. As they demonstrated in their report, the breath-holding weight in the case of the Log4j vulnerability was only a few days. The combination of its simplicity, its publicly available open source code samples, and the massively tantalizing number of vulnerable devices made this a very attractive vulnerability for actors such as APT35. And I have no doubt that, uh, you know, while I don't think I will continue giving this in-depth coverage because we know pretty much everything there is to know about it, well, if something major happens, uh, it'll certainly be newsworthy. But that's how this stuff works. Again, uh, just it's frightening how how non-rocket science, how <laughs> how script kitty level yeah. this thing is and that it can get up to so much mischief amazing even a uh even a what is it a kitty what kind of kitty charming kitten even a charming <laughs> kitten can do it who comes up is that like a volnanim uh who comes up with i mean there's fancy bear for the russian group charming kitten for the iranian group <laughs> somebody's coming up with these must yeah, be the, yes, must be the cia or the nsa that's just why okay so uh, unsurprisingly, uh, as I said at the top of the show, the world's cyber news this past week was dominated by the cyber aspects of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we've been living through, and this Twit Podcast Network has documented and chronicled important and fascinating aspects of, you know, the evolution of the personal computer and the Internet. When I think back, Leo, to where we were with honey, honey monkeys, you know, almost 18 years ago, it's like, OK, a lot has changed. HTTP was a thing, right, with no S. Now, good luck if you don't have an S there. Um, and 
And I have to admit that when this first, when this podcast, Security Now, began, I was personally skeptical of the idea of cyber warfare. It just, like, really? Like, packets? Um, You know, well, obviously, since then, I've been well disabused of of any such skepticism. Um, uh, And I've been interested to note that in the last few weeks, all the experts, because, like, cyber warfare is, like, a topic now we like on it on any time like there's a discussion of what's going on it's like oh what are, you know this threat of cyber warfare and the presumption is that it would not be constrained to russia and ukraine it would be you know global uh to some degree um but all the point is that all the experts that i'm hearing talk about it feel much as i do which is that it's something no one is really that excited to unleash, uh, very much like, you know, the Cold War days of mutually assured destruction. Um, and as I said last week, the feeling is that no one has any real confidence in their own defenses being adequate. So nobody wants to be the first to initiate what you, whoa, and I forgot to turn that down. Uh, our little friend telling me I've got email. Sorry. Uh, no one's that, you know, confident about their own defenses being adequate. So no one wants to be the first to initiate what might be mutually assured cyber destruction. We don't even know what that looks like. And nobody wants to find out. Yet, here we are today, kind of picking around the edges of exactly that possibility, such that more than any other time in the past, it's on everyone's lips. Um, okay, so uh, I'm not going to spend an inordinate amount of time on any one of these topics. But the, the, literally, as I was going through the last week's What Is There to Talk About, it was all about this. It was all about the consequences of this. So Saturday before last, on the 26th, Ukraine's Minister of Digital Transformation, whose name we'll hear of a few times today, uh, Mikhailo Fedorov, announced the creation of an army of IT specialists to fight for Ukraine in cyberspace. Mikhailo said, quote, we have many talented Ukrainians in tech, developers, cyber specialists, designers, copywriters, marketing specialists, targeting specialists. Wow. Targeting specialists. And he said, we are creating an IT army. All operational tasks will be posted here. There's plenty to do for everyone. We continue our fight at the cyber front. So of course, being that he's their, their digital transformation guy, his focus is that. Anyway, turns out that Michaelo's call did not go unheeded. Uh, at when I captured this particular report, the number of volunteers that had signed up, and we'll see that by the time we end this podcast, that number has has grown. Uh, at this point, it was already 175,000 people had said, "Yeah, I want to, you know, sign what? me up. I want to <laughs> 175,000." Wow. 
<laughs> I didn't know there were that many people with uh, skills. Yeah, well, and, and they said copywriters, marketing specialists. Oh, right. So, okay. so you know, like you don't have to actually know how to sharpen the front edge of a packet in order to send it <laughs> off. Wow. Uh, you just have to know what that packet should contain, I guess, if it was some propaganda You're or something. You're going to need some IT specialists to manage the database of volunteers. <laughs> yeah, is that's what right. they're going to need. That's right. So he said, many have been tasked with launching DDoS attacks against Russian websites, including government websites, banks, and energy companies. On the 27th, the day after this, officials also told volunteers to target websites registered uh, in Belarus. Michaelo also publicly released the targeting list. Okay, so, so this is the IT Army of Ukraine. It says, for all IT specialists from other countries, we translated tasks in English. So he says, task number one, we encourage you to use any vectors of cyber and DDoS attacks on these resources. So, I mean, this is the publicly posted list from Ukraine. So we've got three categories, business corporations, banks, and the state. So, for example, business corporations, Gazprom, I, I can't even pronounce these things. I, I won't try. But there's like um, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19 specific business corporations where the UR, their URL and I think without exception, oh, there is a .com, by, by far the most are .ru, of course. There are some, there's a .org, um, pr predominantly RU. Then we've got three banks, uh, the Esper Bank, VTB, and Gazprom Bank. And then the third category is the state. There's public services, Moscow State Services, President of the Russian Federation, Government of the Russian Federation, Ministry of Defense, Tax, whatever that is, uh, uh, Customs, Pension Fund, and our favorite, Roskomnadzor is also there. So, uh, you know, uh, I mean, obviously they're being put upon, uh, that is Ukraine is, and they're saying, hey, Cyber is now a vector of of counterattack. So let's go. And, you know, here's your initial targeting list. Yikes. An open call for everyone and, you know, anyone and everyone to participate. Um, you know, and but let's be clear that the perceived justice, if that's how you feel of this cause, doesn't make it legal. Right. So. People listening that don't know, don't go, don't go off attacking Russia because, you know, because some guy in Ukraine said, yeah, here's here's where you go. Don't do that. Uh, according to Viktor Zora, an official at the Ukrainian cybersecurity agency charged with protecting government networks, he said, quote, Russian media outlets that are, quote, constantly lying to their citizens, unquote, and financial and transportation organizations supporting the war effort are among the potential targets for digital attacks from the so-called Ukrainian IT army. He said that the IT army is a loose band of Ukrainian citizens and foreigners that are not part of the Ukrainian government. But Kiev is encouraging them 
Uh, it's an example of how the Ukrainian government is pulling out all the stops to try to slow Russia's military assault and illustrates how cyber attacks have played a supporting role in the war. The goal of this IT army of Ukraine is to, quote, do everything possible to make the aggressor feel uncomfortable with their actions in cyberspace and in Ukrainian land. Uh, and so, you know, this was Victor Zora in a video conference with journalists on Friday. And and I will say, because I've just gone through this myself, assembling this 17-page notes for this podcast, if you follow along by the end of this podcast, I would argue you will have a very mature, complete, almost comprehensive, I dare say, appreciation for everything that is going on, like everywhere on this. Um, it's it's what we're here to talk about. Well, Russia hasn't disconnected from the Internet yet, but who knows what 2023 will be. We'll be back with more of Steve Gibson in just a moment. First, a word from our sponsor. I hope you're enjoying our best of. Steve's great, isn't he? We just love doing this show together. And for most of the year, we have loved our sponsor, ExpressVPN. They've been with us all year long. Using the Internet without ExpressVPN, my personal choice for a VPN, well, that would be, I don't know, like walking your dog in public without a leash most of the time. No problem. You'll probably be fine. But what if one day the dog runs away or gets dog-napped? It's better to be careful. You're not preparing for everyday activity. You're preparing for the worst. Somebody spying on you, somebody attacking you. That's why it's great when you've got something as simple as ExpressVPN. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network, which could be in cafes and hotels and airports, your online data is insecure. Any hacker in the same network has all sorts of ways to attack your system and steal your personal data using things that are widely available on the Internet, like the, like the Wi-Fi pineapple. But ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the Internet. So they can't see you. They can't attack you. You're absolutely safe. In fact, it's so good. The encryption is so strong. It'll take a hacker with a supercomputer over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. ExpressVPN works on all your devices, phone, tablet, laptop, even on your smart TV. In fact, they've got a great router now. They You can put ExpressVPN on many routers, but they even sell a router that's just fantastic. In fact, we were talking to uh, Doug M., right? He took an ExpressVPN router with him to Vietnam, was able to watch all his shows in the United States, communicate securely and safely, worked phenomenally, and he said he was getting amazing data rates. I can't remember what he said, but it was like 100, 200, 300 megabits. Try that with some other VPN. Only ExpressVPN works as fast as you do. And it's so easy to use. Put it on the router or just fire up the app, click one button, boom, you're safe. Now, if you go to expressvpn.com slash security now, you can get three extra months with a one-year package, absolutely free. Expressvpn.com slash security now. Buy a 12-year package, you'll get 15 months for the price of 12. And I have to tell you, it is the only VPN I trust, the only one I use, expressvpn.com slash security now. Thank you, ExpressVPN, for being such a great sponsor for Steve's work all this year. Speaking of work, time to get back to Steve. We're back with more 2022. We kick things off in this segment with a look at Kaspersky antivirus. Is it safe? Well, the U.S., the FCC... 
Kaspersky Labs and Chinese telecoms are all mixed up. Uh, last Friday, in an announcement titled FCC Expands List of Equipment and Services that Pose Security Threat, unquote, the U.S. Federal Communications Commission added the well-known to us Russian cybersecurity firm Kaspersky to its covered list, believing that the use of Kaspersky Lab products poses unacceptable risks to U.S. national security. The coverage includes information, uh, the, the, the Kaspersky's information security products, solutions, and services supplied by Kaspersky or any linked companies, including subsidiaries or affiliates. And the same day, last Friday, the HackerOne bug bounty program also terminated their relationship with Kaspersky. HackerOne's decision to disable Kaspersky's bug bounty program follows the news that Germany's Federal Office for Information Security, known as BSI, had warned companies against using Kaspersky products. The German regulator indicated that Russian authorities could force the AV provider into allowing Russian intelligence to launch cyber attacks against its customers or have its products used for cyber espionage campaigns. Just to be clear, this is all entirely without any precipitating evidence and only out of an abundance of caution. Kaspersky responded by writing, Kaspersky is disappointed with the decision by the Federal Communications Commission to prohibit certain telecommunications-related federal subsidies from being used to purchase Kaspersky products and services. This decision is not based on any technical assessment of Kaspersky products that the company continuously advocates for but instead is being made on political grounds. Kaspersky maintains that the U.S. government's 2017 prohibitions on federal entities and federal contractors from using Kaspersky products and services were unconstitutional based on unsubstantiated allegations and lacked any public evidence of wrongdoing by the company. And there has been no public evidence to otherwise justify those actions since 2017. And the FCC announcement specifically refers to the Department of Homeland Security's 2017 determination as the basis for today's decision. Kaspersky believes today's expansion of such prohibition on entities that receive FCC communications-related subsidies is similarly unsubstantiated and is a response to the geopolitical climate rather than a comprehensive evaluation of the integrity of Kaspersky's products and services. Kaspersky will continue to assure its partners and customers on the quality and integrity of its products and remains ready to cooperate with U.S. government agencies to address the FCC's and any other regulatory agency's concerns. Kaspersky provides industry-leading products and services to customers around the world to protect them from all types of cyber threats, and it has stated clearly that it doesn't have any ties with any government, including Russia's. The company believes that transparency 
and the continued implementation of concrete measures to demonstrate its enduring commitment to integrity and trustworthiness to its customers is paramount. Unquote. Now, I completely agree that Kaspersky has never given us any cause to mistrust them. But that's not the question or the problem. That's a misdirection, I think, that misses the point. And they know what the point is. Where they are is the point. So I'm not sympathetic to Kaspersky's plight. None of this should have been a surprise to them. It's been their conscious choice to remain operating in Russia for the past eight years since 2014, after their president and country illegally invaded Ukraine and annexed its Crimean Peninsula. And being in Russia, they know far more than we do how their country is being run and has been acting. We know that not everyone in Russia agrees with Putin, and I don't doubt that Kaspersky would resist and fight any subversion of their integrity. That's all they have, and that's a lot to lose. But given everything we've seen recently, it might not be their choice, and that's the point. Given the awesome networking power that a deeply trusted and embedded company such as Kaspersky wields, and in the context of an authoritarian regime, which is increasingly acting as if it has nothing left to lose, there's every reason to worry that Kaspersky's employees could be forced to act against their will. So it's not Kaspersky for a moment that I don't trust. It's their ruthless and immoral government that ultimately controls them, which we cannot afford to trust in this instance. And there are plenty of good, maybe even better choices in the world. It's not like they have Exactly. Now, I have to point out that Kaspersky uh, got his technical education from the KGB higher school, which prepares intelligence officers for the Russian military and KGB. He has a degree from there in mathematical engineering and computer technology. He served in the Soviet military, Soviet military intelligence service as a software engineer. And he met his wife at a KGB vacation resort two years before he founded Kaspersky Antivirus. I'm not saying, I mean, here's part of the problem is everybody loves Eugene because he goes, he's a very good salesman. And he goes around and he goes to conferences and stuff and, you know, he buys people drinks. Dvorak used to swear by Kaspersky, probably because he used to hang with Eugene. Yep. Um, I don't know. I think there's, uh, there's no evidence but there's enough uh, smoke. And, and, yes. And, and, and your point, Leo, is why take the risk? Well, you don't have to. So why? And all this, by the way, is saying you can't use government subsidies to buy Kaspersky. Right. Right. And by the way, you can't buy a lot of Russian stuff right now, not because they're inherently insecure, but because it's it's money to Russia. So yep. I don't think this is a, a bridge too far. Yeah. But, and, you know. From my standpoint, there's no way I would feel completely comfortable right now if my computer was running software that was routinely phoning home to Russia. That just, you know, seems a bad idea. We're waiting for the big cyber attack. And they were implicated in the in the leak of the NSA hacking tools. Yes. Whether intentionally or not, they were in. They were involved. Yep. Which is not to say that other AV might not have also been doing the same thing. But. 
you know, theirs went to Russia. <laughs> so anyway. And, and you know, it, for what it's worth, Kaspersky has not been singled out for this treatment, at least not globally. Last week's decision to designate Kaspersky as a national security threat follows previous decisions to ban and revoke uh, China Unicom America's license over serious national security concerns in January of this year. And two and a half years or two and a half weeks ago, the FCC added the Chinese telecommunications companies Huawei, ZTE, uh, Hytera Communications, Hikvision and um, and uh, Dawa to its ban list. Back in June of 2020, Huawei and ZTE were designated national security threats to the integrity of the U.S. communications networks or the communications supply chain. And now the Chinese state-owned mobile service providers China Mobile International USA and China Telecom Americas have been added as well. So, you know, tensions are running high. And, you know, Leah, we're in this weird world of deep economic codependency with those we do not trust. It's freaky. I mean, I don't think I have anything. I don't think I own anything that didn't come from China. It's all made in China, baby, yeah. Yet, you know, here we are, you know, and how many times have I talked about our IoT stuff? Right. You know, all my my lights and plugs and things turn on and off because they're connecting to Chinese cloud services. I actually think and, that's a good thing, not for a, from a security point of view, but from a, a global economic uh, yes, perspective. Too. Interdependence yes. is good for peace. Yes, and if it weren't if we weren't so independent, interdependent, we couldn't sanction Russia to the degree we have. Yes, and obviously and it's fact, not enough I, to stop them, but well, it's not enough to stop one man. Right, and I think that's the, the problem. That's the problem is that this guy is you know believed to be the richest person in the world. You know, nothing. He doesn't care. Doesn't at care. this point, and doesn't there we, there are no handles right. on him. There's nothing right. we can do. Right, and and so we'll see what happens. But. Yeah. Um, yikes. Lenovo. Uh, Leo, I, who, I heard you refer to Lenovo's UEFI problems on some podcast recently. So, you know, this has been in the news a lot. Oh, yeah. It's not, it's not surprising. I'm, I'm aware it's, of it because I buy a lot of Lenovo hardware. Yes, so that's been the ThinkPad, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, it's yeah, I love been the like ThinkPad. The, the, yeah. Yes, the premier laptop. So, as we know, when a PC is powered up, Something needs to wake up and configure the various parts of the machine. The video needs to be started. The fans need to spin up. All of the machine's various mass storage subsystems need to be initialized. And then the firmware's configuration needs to be checked. The proper operating system needs to be located. And its OS boot code needs to be initially loaded into RAM so that control can be turned over to it to continue booting the machine. The first PCs did that using their basic input-output system, BIOS or BIOS. That was good uh, for about five years. It actually didn't last very long because the PC just exploded in terms of you know what everybody wanted to do with it. Um, so the limitations which had been built into the BIOS's assumptions began to cause more problems than they were worth then they were worth almost automatically. And various Mickey Mouse workarounds were created to overcome many of these problems while Intel worked on a wholesale replacement of the BIOS. 
The initial attempt was the EFI, the so-called Extensible Firmware Interface, which quickly matured into the Unified Extensible Firmware Interface, UEFI. And we find ourselves right back where we always do. The original BIOS was so dumb that it could not be infected. It was originally implemented in... (laughs) Sometimes dumb is a good thing. (laughs) That's exactly. Uh, It was originally implemented in masked ROM, meaning that the firmware's bits were etched into a metal mask at the factory and could never be changed. It didn't mean you had to get the code right the first time. No updates. And that was something people used to be able to do. But... We don't do that anymore. Uh, So that soon gave way to non-volatile flash ROM, which could be updated, but the code it implemented was still blessedly dumb. Sometimes, for some things, the dumber the better. Because if all you want is to boot an OS, you really don't need that much smarts. The BIOS did it just fine. And the lesson we keep falling into and we keep failing to learn is that the more complicated, fancy, capable, and smart we make things, the more leeway and latitude the system has to go very badly wrong. So, welcome to the unified extensible firmware interface where malware is also able to extend the firmware. Lenovo has been most recently in the we made a UFI mistake news recently. Last week, the guys over at ESET, whose motto is we live security, posted the results of their analysis of some widely used Lenovo UEFI firmware. Their posting's title was, quote, when secure isn't secure at all, colon, high impact UEFI vulnerabilities discovered in Lenovo consumer laptops. And the story's tagline is, ESET researchers discover multiple vulnerabilities in various Lenovo laptop models that allow an attacker with admin privileges to expose the user to firmware-level malware. Okay, firmware-level malware. That's not what you want to hear. That's even less what you want to have crawling around inside your machine. Firmware-level malware enables the ultimate in rootkit techniques. In fact, having its own worst name, bootkit. The presence of firmware-level malware means, quite simply, that it's impossible to trust anything about what the machine might do. Firmware-level malware is able to infect and compromise the operating system's own code during its boot process before it has had any opportunity to raise its own shields. And reformatting the machine's mass storage and reinstalling an operating system or even removing and replacing a drive won't necessarily eliminate the problem because this malware has taken up residence in the machine's underlying firmware on the motherboard, on a, on a uh, non-volatile memory soldered to the main board. Now, we know 
that anybody can make a mistake. And I am, as, as our listeners know, I am infinitely forgiving of mistakes. But the most troubling aspect of what the ESET researchers found was that two of the three big mistakes Lenovo made were the oversight of leaving highly exploitable drivers in the UEFI firmware image, which should have only been present during the firmware's development. These drivers should have never left the factory. So it's not like they got, you know, a loop condition wrong or something like a mistake. You know, they've left stuff in there that should not be in there. How do we know? (laughs) We know because the two drivers were actually named Secure Backdoor. <laughs> that's the in the UEFI firmware. That's the driver's name. Yeah, we're gonna <laughs> talk to about secu- an oxymoron. Secure back door. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Turns out it it wasn't. Yeah. The other one was secure back door PEIM. So here's what ESET said. They said ESET researchers have discovered and analyzed three vulnerabilities affecting various Lenovo consumer laptop models. Various. Yeah, we'll get to that in a minute. The first two of these vulnerabilities, and we got two CVEs from this year, 39, 71, and 72, affect UEFI firmware drivers originally meant to be used, this is ESET, only during the manufacturing process of Lenovo consumer notebooks. Unfortunately, writes ESET, they were mistakenly included also in the production firmware images without being properly deactivated slash or deleted. These affected firmware drivers can be activated by an attacker to directly disable SPI flash protections, that is using control register bits and protected range registers, or the UEFI secure boot feature from a privileged user mode process running OS runtime. Okay, so just to be clear about what ESET just said, they said from a privileged user mode process in the OS. In other words, mistakenly a user, any user of these laptops, mistakenly allowing some malware to run in their OS, which might innocently ask to be granted brief UAC privilege elevation to install something, if that is, if it didn't bring along its own privilege uh, escalation vulnerability exploit, as it might, or which might set itself up to run as a system service. That code can disable all relevant UEFI write protections to then surreptitiously install semi-permanent hidden bootkit malware into the system's UEFI firmware. And the user would be none the wiser. And we don't know how to scan for that yet. We're, I mean, there, there's been some talk of scanning UEFI. Uh, nothing much has come of it. ESET said it means that exploitation of these vulnerabilities would allow attackers to deploy and successfully execute SPI flash or ESP implants like Lojax. To understand how we were able to find these vulnerabilities, consider the firmware drivers affected by, and then they this is the CVE number, the 3971. <laughs> they wrote, these drivers 
imagine this, Leo, immediately caught our attention by their very unfortunate but surprisingly honest names. Secure Backdoor and Secure Backdoor PEIM. After some initial analysis, we discovered other Lenovo drivers sharing a few common characteristics with the Secure Backdoor asterisk drivers. Those are CHG, I guess that's short for change, and then Boot DXE hook and CHG Boot SMM. Uh, you know, SMM is system uh, management mode stuff, which is the, the OS under the OS. As it turned out, they write, their functionality was even more interesting and could be abused to disable UEFI secure boot. That's, that's the CVE ending in 3972. In addition, they said, while investigating the vulnerable drivers, we discovered a third vulnerability, SMM memory corruption inside the SWSMI handler function. Thus, we have CVE ending in 3970. This vulnerability, they said, allows arbitrary read-write from into SMRAM, which can lead to the ex execution of malicious code with full SMM privileges. That's again, that's like the chip level privileges, nothing more privileged in the world than that. And they said potentially lead to the deployment of an SPI flash implant. We reported all discovered vulnerabilities to Lenovo on October 11th, 2021. And I didn't have it in the show notes, but Lenovo responded a month later. Although the list of affected devices contains, and here it comes, <laughs> more than 100 different consumer laptop models with millions, many of users worldwide, from affordable models like IdeaPad 3 to more advanced ones like Legion 5 Pro or Yo Yoga Slim 9. The full list of affected models with active development support is published in the Lenovo advisory. In addition to the models listed in the advisory, several other devices we reported to Lenovo are also affected but won't be fixed due to them reaching end of development support, EODS. This includes devices where we spotted reported vulnerabilities for the first time. IdeaPad 330 and IdeaPad 110. The list of such EODS devices that we have been able to identify will be available in ESET's Vulnerability Disclosures Repository. And what this tells us, reading between the lines, is that these vulnerabilities have been there long enough for those machines which they started affecting to now have left, have gone out of their service life with Lenovo. Thus, they will never be fixed. Lenovo, oh yeah, I do have in the, in the notes, Lenovo confirmed the vulnerabilities on November 17th, 2021, and assigned them the following CVEs. And, and I mean, they're being, they're coming right, right out with it. CVE ending in 3790, Lenovo variable SMM, and they say hyphen, SMM arbitrary read-write. The one ending in 3971, secure backdoor, disable SPI flash protections. And 3972, change boot DXE hook, disable UEFI secure boot. 
So given how incredibly active the cyber underworld is today, we keep encountering quite sobering evidence of it. You know, in every podcast now, there's just no chance that these now fully disclosed and very well-documented vulnerabilities will not be used to compromise the interests of some of these millions of Lenovo laptop users worldwide, and many of them are, you know, going to be serious users. It will happen. So here we are once more noting that there's something very wrong with our industry's current development model. You know, how can this be allowed to occur over and over and over? ESET had to reverse engineer the proprietary code in this UEFI firmware in order to find these problems. That it's And it's affecting, Lord knows, what multiple of millions of Lenovo laptop users. Lenovo messed up big time here. But for the record, they're not alone. These newly disclosed vulnerabilities merely add to the recent disclosure of more than 50 UEFI firmware vulnerabilities which have been found in inside softwares, you know, I-N-S-Y-D-E, inside softwares, inside H2O, and HP and Dell laptops since the start of just this year. Among those are six severe flaws in HP's firmware affecting both laptops and desktops, which, when exploited, could allow attackers to locally escalate to SMM privileges, which, as I said, is as much as you can get on any hardware platform, and trigger at least denial of service and maybe more. So, you know, Lenovo is in good company, or at least only the most recent member of this UFI vulnerability doghouse. Um, and as we know, it's not Lenovo's first instance of UFI problems. We've, we've, you know, years ago, they've also had problems. So we've managed to make our lovely little machines far more complex by designing in extremely powerful capabilities. Yes, we get lots more flexibility. We get remote management and remote maintenance. And not surprisingly, it's also a mixed blessing. So a heads up to anyone using Lenovo laptops, regardless of the model you have, don't look at a list of affected models. First of all, there's, there's hundreds. Uh, you should definitely check in to see whether your device has a firmware update outstanding. And for that matter, HP and Dell users would be well advised to do the same. Do you think these uh, changes are driven by the needs of enterprise? In other words, are, are we personal and home users and geeks suffering because yes, they, exactly they want these that. management capabilities built in. For exactly enterprise. that. Yeah. Exactly that, Leo. Yeah. There should be, and there are a few places where you can get simpler systems with simpler uh, UEFI and core boot open source uh, f- uh, firmware and things like that. Um, and they are really not aimed at enterprise. Um, what was the other thing I wanted to... Uh, to mention, oh yeah, firmware updates now, it's interesting, are increasingly part of the operating system update. I don't know if you've noticed that. Yeah, um, well, we, we we know that Windows, for example, is patching the yep. Intel 
the Intel chipset firmware, right. Linux brings along the same thing. Exactly. And to, to their credit, although it is a little, you know, a bit of a mixed blessing, Lenovo now has software that comes pre-installed on their machines, which is taking responsibility for keeping your machine's firmware up to date. So uh, it makes it better than if you like, you know, than like never ever having the opportunity to proactively inform Lenovo machine owners and having a problem like this out there that would make them persistently vulnerable. Yeah, yeah. Boy, over the years, the what is it, 15 years we've been doing security now, the name Lenovo has come up a few times. Uh, I still love my ThinkPads. That's all. I, that's all I'm going to say. We're going to take a little break, come back with more of Steve Gibson and the best of Security Now 2022 in just a moment. First, a word from our sponsor. I'm going to interrupt one more time, Steve. Sorry, the best stuff continues in moments. I guess I'm interrupting myself, aren't I? <laughs> we'll have more with Steve and uh, the best stuff in just a bit. But first, a word from a great sponsor. They've been with us all year, Collide. Collide is an endpoint security system that uses the most powerful, underappreciated, untapped resource in IT, your end users. When you're trying to achieve security goals, whether for a third-party audit or your own compliance standards, you know, the typical conventional wisdom is to treat every device like Fort Knox and every user like the enemy. Old-school device management tools like MDMs force disruptive agents onto employees' devices People know when they put them on, it's going to slow me down and it's going to hurt my privacy. That way of doing things turns you, IT admins, into end enemies of the end users, right? And then you got your own security problems because end users say, well, I don't want the performance hit. I don't want, I want to preserve my privacy. So they turn to shadow IT just to do their jobs. Now, now you got a big problem, right? Collide does things a little bit differently. Instead of Forcing changes on users, Collide sends them security recommendations via Slack. Collide automatically notifies your team when their devices are insecure, gives them step-by-step instructions on how to solve the problems. And by reaching out to employees via a friendly Slack DM and educating them about company policies, Collide can help you build a culture in which everyone contributes to security because everyone understands how and why to do it. Make employees part of your team, not the enemy. And for IT admins, you're going to love Collide, a single dashboard that lets you monitor the security of your entire fleet, completely cross-platform, Mac, Windows, Linux, doesn't matter. You can see at a glance, for instance, which employees have their disks encrypted, which of them are up to date on their OS patches, whether they're using a password manager, and on and on and on. on. That makes it easy to prove compliance to your auditors, to your customers, to your leadership. It makes it easy for you to keep an eye on what's going on in your network. So in a nutshell, that's Collide. User-centered, cross-platform, endpoint security for teams that slack. I think it's a brilliant idea. You can meet your compliance goals by putting users first. Visit K-O-L-I-D-E, collide.com slash security now to find out how. If you follow that link, they'll hook you up with a goodie bag including a great Collide t-shirt. I got it right here. Just for activating that free trial, you get Collide coasters, all sorts of cool stuff. That's a, that's a little holiday gift for you from Collide. K-O-L-I-D-E, collide.com slash security now. Now, back to the best ofs. Back to the best of 2022 with Steve Gibson. Let's talk about passkeys. 
Now, let's talk about this Fido thing, because I'm very, I really want to get your take on it. So, Ars Technica's headline was Apple, Google, and Microsoft want to kill the password with passkey standard. Instead of a password, devices would look for your phone over Bluetooth. Bleeping Computer said Microsoft, Apple, and Google to support Fido passwordless logins. The record said Google, Apple, and Microsoft to expand support for passwordless sign-in standard. Uh, you know, and it made the headlines in all of the tech press. Um, and all of these headlines popped up last Thursday, May 5th, which, as I said at the top of the show, was not only Cinco de Mayo, but also World Password Day. Uh, and the news of and questions about this new pass keys was the most tweeted to me item of the past week with many of our listeners wanting to know what it was and what I thought. Having spent seven years of my life designing, implementing, demonstrating, and and proving a complete working solution to this need, I have a good grasp of the problem domain. So I dug into this pass keys news by going to the source. As I always endeavor to, I first read the Google, I'm sorry, the Fido Alliance's May 5th press release, which was titled Apple, Google and Microsoft commit to expanded support for Fido standard to accelerate availability of passwordless sign ins. Uh, You know, this was the press release that everyone else was quoting in the news. It appeared that whoever wrote it was being paid by the word since it went on and on to make sure that its reader would come away knowing that all pre-FIDO systems were bad and FIDO was the cure. At this point, it appears that regardless of whether or not it turns out to be the cure, it will at least be the next thing we try. Uh, And I'm in the same boat as all of our listeners. We're all avid users and consumers of the Internet. So we're all hoping that the industry knows what it's doing. But that press release wasn't going to get the job done. Fortunately, it linked to the description of the Fido Alliance white paper titled Multi-Device Fido Credentials. The description of the paper that links to it said the FIDO standards together with their companion web often specification are on the cusp of an important new development evolutionary changes to the standards proposed by the FIDO Alliance and the W3C web often community aim to markedly improve the usability and deployability of FIDO-based authentication mechanisms. As a result, FIDO-based secure authentication technology will, for the first time, be able to replace passwords as the dominant form of authentication on the Internet. What a concept. In this paper... They say, we explain how FIDO and WebAuthn standards previously enabled low-cost deployments of authentication mechanisms with very high assurance levels. While this has proved an attractive alternative to traditional smart card 
authentication and even opened the door to high assurance authentication in the consumer space, we have not attained large-scale adoption of FIDO-based authentication in the consumer space. We explain how the introduction of multi-device FIDO credentials will enable FIDO technology to supplant passwords for many consumer use cases as they make FIDO credentials available to users wherever they need them, even if they replace their device. Okay, so I have a link in the show notes to the PDF for anyone who wants the raw material. Uh, Obviously, this descriptive overview still doesn't tell us what we want to know. So I dug into the white paper. We get the executive summary, followed by a brief history of online authentication, then a section titled FIDO starting from the top, followed by WebAuthn Level 3 bringing up the bottom. So this brings us to the bottom of page 4 of the PDF, and we begin to frame the problem as follows. The, the explanation explains... FIDO-based solutions can also increase the security of consumer two-factor authentication by providing phishing resistance, regardless of whether those use cases care about hardware-based sign-in credentials or not. Now, I should mention that that FIDO was always hardware-based, which has been the problem that they've been struggling with, is that they the the FIDO the the FIDO authentication standard was you will have a hardware dongle, a token, a a something, which because it's hardware, because it's physical, it cannot be spoofed. It cannot be, you know, no, no one in Russia can get the contents of your, of what you have in your thing you're holding in your hand because the, you're holding it. In. The YubiKey said there's some that are FIDO2 YubiKeys. That's that's what you mean. Yes. 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 Yeah. Yes. And 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 so the, which is so, that's good. That's good security. No one would deny that, right? You could argue it's the best. The gold security. Standard. Yeah. Yes. The problem is, it's physical. Yeah, I you mean, can't make the, people buy keys. Fifty dollar yes, keys. <laughs> yes. The benefit. Exactly. The benefit is it. It's physical. The problem is it's physical, and so. If you absolutely so, so where they say, um, they they said FIDO-based solutions can also increase the security of consumer two-factor authentication by providing phishing resistance, regardless of whether those use cases care about hardware-based sign-in credentials or not. In other words, they're saying we're giving up. We're going to back down from the position we had taken. I mean, you could still use hardware-based sign-in credentials, but now you're not going to have to. We're not going to make you have to have a hardware dongle. And and this has been sort of in the air for a couple of years, right? There's been talk about being able to use your phone as your FIDO authenticator. So So this notion isn't completely new. It's been happening. They said, however, we have observed limited adoption in this latter category, especially in the consumer space, because of the perceived inconvenience of physical security keys, 
buying, registering, carrying, recovering, and the challenges consumers face with platform authenticators as a second factor. For example, having to re-enroll each new device. No easy ways to recover from lost or stolen devices. They said, while these drawbacks can make FIDO-based solutions, whether based on physical security keys or platform authenticators, and I should explain this phrase, platform authenticators, that just means your smartphone or your laptop. That's what a, they're, they're calling that a platform authenticator as opposed to a physical security key. So make drawbacks can make FIDO based solutions, whether based on physical security keys or platform authenticators, a tricky proposition for users already accustomed to two factor authentication. They present an even higher barrier to adoption for users who don't or don't want to use two factor authentication at all and are stuck with passwords. And so, finally, we get down to it. The white paper explains, the FIDO Alliance and the W3C Web Often Working Group are proposing to address these gaps in a new version, which they call Level 3, of the Web Often Specification. The two approach, the, 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 they, they said, Two proposed advances in particular bear mentioning. And so here they are, one and two. Number one, using your phone as a roaming authenticator. That's the first of these proposed advances. They said a smartphone is something that end users typically already have. Virtually all consumer space two-factor authentication mechanisms today already make use of the user's smartphone. The problem is that they do this in a way, they do this in a fishable manner. You may inadvertently enter a one-time password on a Fisher's site, or you may approve a login prompt on your smartphone not realizing that your browser is pointed at the phishing site and not the intended destination. The proposed additions to the FIDO WebAuthn specs define a protocol that uses Bluetooth to communicate between the user's phone, which becomes the FIDO authenticator, and the device from which the user is trying to authenticate. You know, your laptop, for example. Bluetooth, they say, requires physical proximity, which means that we now have a phishing-resistant way to leverage the user's phone during authentication. Yeah, the hacker has to be in physical proximity, which is good. (laughs) (laughs) Right, because Bluetooth is not the most secure well, I'll, I'll go no. ahead. Go ahead. No. Of course, Squirrel solved this with a QR code right. that you let your phone see, as we right. know. Right. They said, with this addition to the FIDO WebAuthn standards, two-factor deployments that currently use the user's phone as a second factor will be able to upgrade to a higher security level, phishing resistance, without the need for the user to carry a specialized piece of authentication hardware Perens security keys. Oh, thank God. So, yes, we'll be able to use our phones. Wonderful. That wasn't point one. Here's point two. 
multi-device FIDO credentials. Okay. They say, we expect that FIDO authenticator vendors, in particular, those of authenticators built into OS platforms. This is, we've heard the names, right? Apple, Google, Microsoft will adapt their authenticator implementations such that a FIDO credential can survive device loss. In other words, and again, hasn't been done yet, but this is what they expect. We expect that FIDO authenticator vendors, blah, blah, blah. In other words, if the user had set up a number of FIDO credentials for different relying parties, and you know, relying parties is a term of art in this whole uh, identity space on their phone. If the user had set up a number of FIDO credentials for different relying parties on their phone, and notice that in FIDO, you need a credential per relying party. That is a FIDO credential for Amazon, a FIDO credential for PayPal, a FIDO credential for Facebook, a FIDO credential for Google, blah, blah, blah. One each. That it, that's a, It's a one-for-one one mapping in FIDO. And then they say, got a new phone. That user should be able to expect that their FIDO credentials will be available on their new phone. This means that users don't need passwords anymore <gasps> as they move from device to device. Their FIDO credentials are already there ready to be used for phishing-resistant authentication. Okay, now, I'll just pause to note that I solved this problem with one-time password authenticators with my sheaf of printed QR codes, right? We were talking about that last week. When, I, when I'm enrolling on a site that uses a... Uh, a, a, a one that offers me second factor authentication with a one-time password and it shows me the QR code which I can then capture with my authenticator on my phone I also print the paper print the paper out and it's securely stored there's I have a sheaf of them for all the places I use two-factor authentication so that yeah if I if I need to set up a new uh, device that doesn't sync in some fashion with the authenticator in my phone, I can do that. Uh, it's offline. No one in Russia can get to it. It's very secure. But yeah, it's a little burdensome. I had to do that. Lots of people don't. And then they get stuck if their authenticator won't export or transport and, and, and sync. So they say, for these multi-device FIDO credentials. So that's so this is their term. Multi-device FIDO credentials just means cloud sync. That's all that is. Multi-device FIDO credentials. It is the OS platform's responsibility to ensure that the credentials are available where the user needs them. And uh, uh, also note that some, oh, they said, note that some companies are calling FIDO credentials pass keys in their product implementations, in particular when those FIDO credentials may be multi-device credentials. So in other words, 
Just for the record, passkeys is not a term of art in Fido. And I imagine that the company that has a trademark on passkey is mm. not very happy. Mm. Uh, you know, a lot of people noted that the government started to use the term shields up for one of their mm-hmm. things. And it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, okay, fine. I don't, I don't care. But exactly. So they say, just like password managers do with passwords, the underlying OS platform will sync the cryptographic keys that belong to a FIDO credential from device to device. This means that the security and availability of a user's synced credential depends on the security of the underlying OS platforms Friends, Google's, Apple's, Microsoft's, etc., authentication mechanism for their online accounts, and on the security method for reinstating access when all old devices are lost. While this may not always meet the bar for use cases that require physical key level security, they write it is a huge improvement in security compared to passwords. Each of the reference, they say, colon, each of the reference platform, uh, platforms apply sophisticated risk analysis and employ implicit or explicit second factors in authentication, thus giving two-factor-like protections to many of their users. So this is Fido saying, well, it's not as good as physical keys. We're kind of annoyed, but look, uh, it's going to work. Like maybe someone will actually use Fido because we're going to allow cloud syncing in this level three le- mode. And the the people who are doing the syncing are, you know, being responsible enough. So they said this shift from letting every service fend for themselves with their own password-based authentication system to relying on the higher security of the platform's authentication mechanisms is how we can meaningfully reduce the Internet's over-reliance on passwords at a massive scale. In other words, they're saying that we will rely upon the user authenticating to their own device, smartphone or desktop, with biometrics or whatever, rather than authenticating to each remote site individually. And yes, that sounds familiar. Finally, They say, syncing FIDO credentials, cryptographic keys between devices, may not always be possible. For example, if the user is using a new device from a different vendor, which doesn't sync with the user's other existing devices. In such cases, the existence of the above-mentioned standardized Bluetooth protocol enables a convenient and secure alternative, colon, if the FIDO credential isn't readily available on the device from which the user is trying to authenticate, the user will likely have a device, for example, a phone, nearby that does have the credential. So, in other words, if you're using Windows and iOS won't sync to Windows, then you can use Bluetooth on your iOS device to get the credential over into Windows. They said the user will then be able to use their existing device to facilitate authentication from their new device. Okay, so it appears that what this press release and these so-called pass keys, which is, again, as the white paper explains, don't actually have anything to do with FIDO, that is the term doesn't, 
It's just the introduction of cloud syncing among devices to facilitate the transport of one's collection of FIDO credentials from one device to the next. The other piece, well, and in, in the case of device loss, you, uh, when you get a new one, you resync with the cloud and, and you get all of your FIDO credentials back. The other piece is that the FIDO Alliance appears to have formally given up on the idea that we're all going to go out and purchase a hardware FIDO token when we all already own a smartphone that can serve the same purpose. Um, the use of a possibly available Bluetooth link allows one smartphone to be used to authenticate to a website on a desktop that does not contain a FIDO authenticator with one's credentials. And as, as we said, for clarity, that's what Squirrel provides for with a QR code and the smartphone's camera. And yes, speaking of Squirrel, I know that the heads of everyone out there who understands Squirrel is exploding right now because Fido still falls very far short of providing the complete solution that Squirrel offers. But having moved from simple usernames and passwords to password managers and multi-factor authentication and then to OAuth third-party authentication, we're now going to get Fido. Though it will apparently be popularly called passkeys, um, from the samples I've seen online, it appears that it will still be necessary to first identify oneself to the website being authenticated to. So FIDO with passkeys replaces the password, but unfortunately not the username. So it will continue to be somewhat more cumbersome in that way. The way FIDO's crypto works is that it randomly synthesizes a public and private key pair for each and every website the user wishes to authenticate with. And it gives that site the public key to retain while the FIDO authenticator stores the matching private key for each subsequent use for re-authenticating. So it's this collection of individual private authentication keys, which are now being called pass keys, that Apple, Google, and Microsoft will be obtaining and synchronizing in the cloud for their users. This provides for same platform cross-device FIDO credential synchronization, which is crucial for FIDO since each new website authentication creates another public-private key pair, and it provides for credential recovery in the event of a device's loss, and that's certainly needed to create a practical system. As we know, I went a different way with Squirrel. Squirrel uses a single master key, which can be printed and stored safely, or it could be loaded in the cloud if you wanted, whatever. From that one key, it deterministically synthesizes unique per-site public and private key pairs based upon the website's domain name. And like FIDO, it gives each website the public key to use for future authentication. But unlike FIDO, there is no growing collection of randomly synthesized per-site private keys that need to be retained and cloud-synced among devices. So there's no need to back up a large collection of private keys to the cloud or anywhere. 
the only thing a Squirrel user ever needs for their identity to be secure and fully recoverable for all websites is one piece of paper. And if you have multiple identities on multiple devices, you can log in for the first time on an, on a device, on some other device that has your same Squirrel identity. And when you log on on, 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 a, on a still on a, on a different device, the, the identity works because multiple devices all synthesize the same private key. So backing off from that, overall, this whole big announcement of pass keys appears to have mostly been a world password day timed press event without much technology to back it up. Uh, you, you know, we're not getting squirrel. We, all of us, we're getting Fido. And that means we need cloud synchronized pass keys to make Fido's use practical. The good news is we're going to get it. Uh, It'll, I'll be interested to see how the, you know, how the login flow functions. The other, the b other big thing Fido is missing is it doesn't identify you to the site. You still have to first identify yourself. Then Fido replaces your password. Squirrel did both, which was way more convenient. But anyway, we're not getting Squirrel. We're getting Fido. Uh, and Passkeys is, you know, basically makes it makes fido feasible because you have to be able it's since you are synthesizing completely random keys for every site you visit you've got to collect them you've somehow got to cross device sync them and apple google and microsoft will be taking care of that for us so it sounds like it's kind of less secure than if you used a YubiKey, I guess. Yes, yes, this is this is absolutely Fido Group, the Fido Alliance, compromising themselves down from their ivory tower because Which they needed nobody, to do, nobody, nobody wanted it. Fido. Right. Yes, nobody was going to do it. You know, I mean, yes, high level. I know that there are Google employees who use their oh, their yeah. their Titan keys yeah. to do things, but you, you know, I not, don't have. It's not going to succeed if everybody. In, but see, that's my other issue is not everybody has a smart device. You, I, I guess would this work if you didn't have? Yes. Uh, uh, it's always possible to still use a username and password. Oh, okay. that will that okay. will never go away. Okay, never. Which means never, that's never what people away. are going to do. Yes. <laughs> yes. So. You know, my favorite example, Leo, is the person who said, well, "I don't need a password manager," and I said. Uh, well, you can't be using the same password everywhere. And she said, oh, no, I don't. And I said, uh, how do okay. you do that? <laughs> and, and she said, well, when I'm creating an account, I just bang on the keyboard a lot. <laughs> and I said, okay. And I said, so uh, how, do, how do you log in again? I mean, she said, I forgot. Well, there's always, it always, a there's a little line there that says, I forgot my password. Yeah. She said, and I never knew it. So I did forget it. Yeah. And and they, she said, then they send me a link and I log in with that. And that's, that's actually, is that's fairly secure, right? <laughs> I mean, honestly, yeah. Well, you know, it uses an email, it uses an email confirmation in order to reassert that you As have, long as you don't lose control of your email, you're okay. 
Correct. And and that is the segue to next week's picture of the week, which is already in the document waiting to be displayed. <laughs> you don't have anything else, but that's there. <laughs> that's I right. I love it. Um, obviously, uh, Squirrel would be uh, uh, much more secure, but Squirrel has a similar problem, which is it is not trivially easy to use. And for that reason, I think people are going to fall back to a password for almost anything. Yeah. Single sign-on is good. You know, I use Microsoft now for login to Windows. As you know, sends your phone an authenticator, sends it a digit, a two-digit number, and you say, yeah, I know that number, and you're in. That seems like, is that the same thing as this Fido thing? It's similar. Well, so it's it's specific to Microsoft. Um, That's right. And, and, That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and so we're, we're, we're looking for a... a, a a broad-based solution which solves the phishing and the I forgot my password problem, right? Which is you know easy to use. The fact is, uh, we're, we'll have to see how what the flow looks like. It is certainly easy to do. You know, login with Facebook, login with Google. We know that that's horrific from a tracking and privacy standpoint, right? Because yeah. oh, you're, I don't do you're, that. Bounce, yeah. you're bouncing through them. I've stopped doing them. that entirely, yes. Oh, my God. Yeah. And, in fact, I did hear you um, on Twit last Sunday talking about how you were finally thinking maybe you should be taking privacy a little more yes. seriously. Yes, than you, than I, you I admitted I was wrong. And that because uh, these data brokers selling uh, information about who visited Planned Parenthood over the past week for 160 yeah. bucks, And yeah. what that does is it puts you at – if you live in Texas uh, and there are now other states and soon it might be – Criminalizing. 23 other states. Criminalizing interstate travel for the yeah. purpose of terminating a so pregnancy. So for 160 bucks, anybody – not even, the way this Texas law works, anybody can go after you. So there's now probably a brisk business people buying that information uh, and and then suing you or law enforcement in in, in uh, uh, Tennessee, for instance, going after you um, or I guess it's uh, I guess it's uh, Louisiana. In any event, it's it suddenly became obvious that the government is now starting to uh, go after people for things that uh, they shouldn't be and. It is now dangerous to, you know, leave this and, stuff on. And, and that's really, I think that, that is, you're right. That's that's the takeaway is that given a certain set of 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 uh, existing laws, you could argue that there, with those laws, there's a a reduced risk from lack of privacy. Yeah. But if if the laws change, well, that's the problem. Exactly. Then suddenly. You, the the previous assumptions no longer hold exactly. under the new regime, exactly. and that's the that's yeah. the danger. If you trust yeah. the government, no problem. Uh, I no longer trust the government, so problem. Yeah, and uh, that's too bad. Yeah, but now we have to pay more attention. So you've been right all along. I was a wide-eyed optimist. <laughs> I am no longer. Uh, Steve, thank you as always. Uh, it's always eye-opening and always fascinating. Passkeys, I think, have a huge future. We're very excited about it. Just a couple of weeks ago, Google announced that Chrome was going to start supporting Passkeys. So this is very good news. I think Squirrel would be better. As you know, we Steve Gibson fans know better. But 
Passkeys is better than nothing, and certainly better than passwords. Next, we're going to talk about the Conti gang. Did they really retire? So last Thursday, Advanced Intel is the name of this organization. A-D-V-I-N-T-E-L dot I-O is their domain. Advanced Intel's uh, Yelisey Bogoslavsky tweeted, Today, the official website of Conti Ransomware was shut down. This is last Thursday, making the end of this notorious crime group, marking the end of this notorious crime group. He says it is truly a historic day in the intelligence community. And the day after that, last Friday, they published their report about exactly what happened. Um, There's so much more to it than just someone turned the site off, uh, that I felt certain our listeners would find the details fascinating. And their report is titled, don't blame me, although I did perpetuate it, Discontinued, the end of Conti's brand marks new chapter for cybercrime landscape. And the top of their report teases, reading, from the negotiations site, chat rooms, messengers to servers and proxy hosts, the Conti brand, not the organization itself, is shutting down. How does this, However, oh, he says, I'm sorry. However, this does not mean that the threat actors themselves are retiring. Okay, what does, that, what does it mean? Advanced Intel apparently rushed out their report. It contains some typos, misspelling, and grammatical awkwardness, and they may not be native English speakers. So in order to share, in order to share it with the podcast, I've cleaned it up a bit, but otherwise it remains what they wrote, uh, and I think everyone's going to find it interesting. They said, on May 19th, the admin panel of the Conti Ransomware Gang's official website, Conti News, was shut down. The negotiations service site was also down, while the rest of the infrastructure, from chat rooms to messengers and from servers to proxy hosts, was going through a massive reset. Conti News, a shame blog, is the last beacon of the group's public operation where victim data was being published. It also served as a media tool that Conti used for their endless public statements, one of which led to the gang's downfall. Uh, We'll get to that in a minute. I have a snapshot of it later in the show notes. They said, This publicity function of the blog is still technically active, and this activity, as shown below, is highly strategized. At the time of this publication, May 20th, 2022, Conti was even uploading anti-Americanist hate speech claiming the USA to be, quote, a cancer on the body of the earth, unquote. This, however, only manifests that the website became an empty shell. At the same time, the crucial operational function of Conti News, which was to upload new data in order to intimidate victims to pay, is defunct as all the infrastructure related to negotiations, data uploads, and hosting of stolen data was shut down. Okay, so, and this shutdown, they wrote, highlights a simple truth that has been evident for the Conti leadership since early spring of this year. The group can no longer sufficiently support and obtain extortion. 
the blog's key and only valid purpose is to leak new data sets, and this operation is now gone. This was not a spontaneous decision. They write, instead, it was a calculated move, signs of which were evident since late April. Two weeks ago on May 6th, Advanced Intel explained that the Conti brand and not the organization itself was in the process of the final shutdown. As of May 19th, 2022, our exclusive source intelligence confirms that today Conti's of is Conti's official date of death. In this retrospective analysis, we will not only take an in-depth look into the reasons behind the Conti shutdown, but perhaps most importantly, assess and project the future of a new threat landscape that is already on the horizon. But first, we need to review how Conti prepared for its own demise and how this group, notable for its sophistry, continued to utilize information warfare techniques to orchestrate the shutdown until its final days in order to ensure the legacy of its surviving members. They explained, Shutting down ransomware's iconic criminal brand is a long and complicated venture. A notorious and prolific threat group cannot simply turn off its servers only to pop back up the following week with a new name and logo design. Even a whisper of novel threat group activity following the announcement of Conti's demise would likely spark immediate accusations of poorly executed identity theft. At best, immediate comparisons between the two would would permanently leave the new group in Conti's ghostly shadow, the collective that fell and the one which emerged. And I'll note that you know we've seen and commented on exactly this pre- with previous ransomware operations. So these guys said, Revil, Darkseid, and countless other collectives attempted the disappearing act. The simple approach failed miserably. As what was one of the predominant ransomware groups active at the time, Conti realized that an element of performativity, they wrote, would need to be involved. Where other groups had been attempting a grand stunt with smoke and mirrors, Conti would try a sleight of hand. Conti would not be itself without its project frontman, an individual operating under the alias Uh, Reshev, a.k.a. Gangster. Besides being a talented coder, they were behind that this Reshev was behind the original Ryuk payload. This person was an an outstanding organizer. It was Reshev who set the foundation for Conti's dominance in the cybercrime business by creating an organizational system based on skill, teamwork, clear business processes, hierarchy, and clear foresight. It's not surprising that Reshev was the first who saw Conti's structural challenges. Due to the group's public allegiance to Russia, in the first days of the Russian invasion into Ukraine, Conti was unable to be paid. Since February, almost no payments were given to the group. While Conti's locker, you know, they're the, the, the slang for malware, 
became highly detectable and was rarely being deployed. The only possible decision was to rebrand. For over two months, Conti Collective has been silently creating subdivisions that began operations before the start of the shutdown process. These subgroups either utilized existing Conti alter egos and locker malware or took the opportunity to create new ones. This decision was convenient for Conti as they already had a couple of subsidiaries operating under different names, Karakurt, Blackbite, and Blackbasta. The rebranded version of Conti, the monster splitting into pieces but still very much alive, ensured that whatever form Conti's ex-affiliates chose to take, they would emerge into the public eye before news of Conti's obsolescence could spread, thus controlling the narrative around the the dissolution as well as significantly complicating any future threat attributions. And then they wrote, This is where the plans for what was left of Conti became increasingly complex. In order to hide the fact that Conti was now dispersed and operating via smaller, more novel brands, the former affiliates of the gang had to now convincingly simulate the actions of a dead brand. Conti's remaining infrastructure operated like an army preparing for an ambush. Lingering actors were left to keep their fires lit, visible from behind enemy lines. Meanwhile, hidden from view, Conti's most skilled agents were instead laid low in a nearby encampment, biding their time while watching their great and empty camp send out smoke signals, meticulously emulating the movements of an active group. Conti continued to publish documents stolen from victims, most likely targets hit earlier with attacks, and lined up in a sort of queue waiting for public release, and campaigned hard for themselves on criminal forums. Their public persona boasted a strong and enduring foundation, even one that was willing to further expand the group's operations. From the perspective of Conti's posting history, the group appeared to be as strong as ever. Okay, then they shared a snapshot of a long and quite rambling chest-thumping post from March 30th, where a Conti representative talks up the group's successes, even seeking to recruit new affiliates, all apparently just smokescreen. Then they continue, however, in order to pull off their ultimate tactical maneuver, the agents left behind to operate from within Conti's massive empty shell now had to ensure that their antics would be would successfully lure attention away from their escaping comrades. To do this, they had to be certain that they left bait big enough to satisfy all of the opposing forces. Stretching this analogy, Conti would have to perform a grand finale, one big enough to live up to the group's name. And finally, on May 8th, Costa Rican President Rodrigo Chavez declared a national emergency as the result of a major cyber attack executed by the Conti ransomware gang. 
The massive attack, which took place against multiple Costa Rican government agencies, seems almost like a last-ditch effort by the group to squeeze a few more drops of riches from foreign government funds. However, advanced Intel's unique adversarial visibility and intelligence findings led to what was, in fact, the opposite conclusion. The only goal Conti had for this final attack on Costa Rica um, was to use the platform as a tool to publicly perform their own death and subsequent rebirth. Advance Intel has been tracking the preparations for this attack since April 14th, days before even the initial compromise. Our prevention alert was sent on April 15th, three days before the first incident compromising Costa Rica's Ministry of Finance occurred. Their report... Oh, and, and so, okay, so, so they said that. Now, then their report links to a tweet thread in Spanish, but it appears to be dated from the 18th. But they then provide a screenshot, which indeed appears to substantiate a three-day early warning of an impending attack. So they explain... In our pre- and post-attack investigation, we have found three things. First, the agenda to conduct the attack on Costa Rica for the purpose of publicly, instead of ransom, for, oh, I'm sorry, for the purpose of publicity, instead of ransom, was declared internally by the Conti leadership. Second, Internal communications between group members suggested that the requested ransom payment was far below one million U.S. dollars, despite unverified claims of the ransom being ten million U.S. dollars, followed by Conti's own claims that the sum was twenty million dollars. A low demand such as this, made to a state entity no less, was only made with the knowledge that the group would never see payment for the ransom either way. You know, because their payment pipeline had been completely foreclosed on by the sanctions against Russia and by their pro- pronounced affiliation with Russia. And third, Conti was very vocal about the attack, constantly adding new political statements. And, you know, that's this kind of junk that we talked about last week. They say the attack on Costa Rica indeed brought Conti into the spotlight and help them to maintain the illusion of life for just a bit longer, while the real restructuring had already taken place. While Conti had been busy with its diversion tactics, other brands such as Karakurt, Blackbite, and numerous other groups, which existed as extensions of Conti, but without taking the group's name, were extremely operationally active, although working in silence. Working concurrently with them, talented infiltration specialists who were were ultimately the backbone of Conti's gang were also more active than ever, forming alliances with Black Cat, Avos Locker, Hive, Hello Kitty, Five Hands, and a whole other cadre of ransomware groups. These pen testers maintain personal loyalty to the people who created Conti, but ultimately continued their work with other gangs in order to fully shed Conti's name and image. 
The situation presents the first and foremost reason for Conti's timely end, toxic branding. Indeed, the first two months of 2022 left a major mark on the Conti name. While there's no tangible evidence to suggest that the well-known Conti leaks had any impact on the group's operations, the event which provoked the leak, Conti's claim to support the Russian government, seems to have been the fatal blow for the group, despite being revoked almost immediately. And we noted that at the time. Remember that Conti posted, the Conti team is officially announcing a full support of Russian government. If anybody will decide to organize a cyber attack or any war activities against Russia, we are going to use all our all possible resources to strike back at the critical infrastructures of an enemy. That statement had several key consequences, uh, advanced Intel wrote, all of which deeply reshaped the environment Conti was operating within. First, by engaging in political discourse, Conti broke the first unspoken rule of the Russian-speaking cybercrime community, which is not to intervene in state matters. In Advanced Intel's public blog regarding Revil's ultimate takedown by the Russian government, Advanced Intel provided an in-depth analysis of this unspoken agreement, making case studies of the two most notable groups to break it, Avedon and Revil. With the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine, it may be very plausible that Russia's state security apparatus is attempting to exert governmental control over its cyberspace, even taking down groups that appear to have been allies, but who exhibited undue independence with their actions. Advanced Intel has seen internal communication of the Conti leadership suggesting that the Russian FSB had been pressuring the group, and even though non-factual evidence was involved, the Revil scenario may have simply repeated itself with Conti, the group's brand becoming a target for Russian authorities despite their pledged loyalties. Second, Conti's allegiance to the Russian invasion of Ukraine provoked internal conflict and brought shame on the Conti name from members who were either ethnically Ukrainian or were Russian but supported Ukraine or simply wanted to maintain an anti-war ethic. Considering that one of these members decided to betray the gang and leak private Conti chat logs, we talked about that too, not long after the conflict began, this illustrated the final nail in Conti's self-made coffin. The third and most important factor, by pledging their allegiance to the Russian government, Conti as a brand became associated with the Russian state, a state that is currently undergoing extreme sanctions. In the eyes of the state, each ransom payment going to Conti may have potentially gone to an individual under sanction, turning simple data extortion into a violation of OFAC regulation and sanction policies against Russia. This liability came to a head on May 6th when the U.S. State Department offered rewards up to 10 million U.S. dollars for information that led to the takedown of the Conti Group. As a result of these limitations, Conti had essentially cut itself off from the main source of income. 
They wrote, our sensitive source intelligence shows that many victims were prohibited from paying ransom to Conti. Other victims and companies who would have negotiated ransomware payments were more were more ready to risk the financial damage of not paying the ransom than they were to make payments to a pro-Russian state-sanctioned entity. As advanced intel previously stated, the end of the Conti brand does not equal the end of Conti as an organization. As seen with the Costa Rica case, Conti has been carefully planning its rebranding for several months preparing a comprehensive strategy to execute it. The strategy is based on two pillars. First, Conti is adopting a network organizational structure, more horizontal and decentralized than the previously rigid Conti hierarchy. This structure will be a coalition of several equal subdivisions, some of which will be independent, and some existing within another ransomware collective. However, they will all be united by internal loyalty to both each other and the Conti leadership, especially Reshev. At this point, this network includes the following groups. The first type being autonomous, no lot, no malware locker involved, pure data stealing. That's Karakurt, Black Basta, and Blackbyte. The second type being semi-autonomous, acting as Conti-loyal collective affiliates within other collectives in order to use their malware locker. That's Alf, Alf V, or Alf 5 maybe, Black Cat, Hive, Hello Kitty, Five Hands, and Avos Locker. The third type being independent affiliates, working individually but keeping their loyalty to the organization. And finally, the fourth type being mergers and acquisitions, where Conti leadership infiltrates a pre-existing minor brand and consumes it entirely, keeping the small brand name in place. The small, grapes, the small group's leader loses their independence but receives a massive influx of manpower while Conti obtains, ob- obtains a new subsidiary group. This is different from ransomware as a service. Since this network, at least at the time of writing, does not seem to be accepting new members as part of its structure. Moreover, unlike ransomware as a service, this model seems to value operations being executed in an organized, team-led manner. Finally, unlike ransomware as a service, all the members know each other very well personally and are able to leverage these personal connections and the loyalty they bring and Implied in that, of course, would be some protection against U.S. based bounties against their members if they're, you know, maintain a loyal, cohesive group. You know, one turns one in and they're subjecting themselves to similar uh, reprisal. And finally, they finish. This model is more flexible and adaptive than the previous Conti hierarchy while also being more secure and resilient than ransomware as a service. And finally, the other major development for this new ransomware model is the transition from, and this is really interesting, from data encryption to data exfiltration, covered extensively by advanced intel in our analysis of Karakurt and Blackbyte. In a nutshell, relying on pure data exfiltration maintains most major benefits 
of a data encryption operation while avoiding the issues of a locker altogether. Most likely, this will become the most important outcome of Conti's rebrand. The actors that formed and worked under Conti name have not and will not cease their forward movement within the threat landscape. Their impact will simply leave a different shape. So, to our listeners, if anyone in your cyber sphere announces that Conti has shut down and disbanded, well, now we know better. It appears that earlier this year, as a consequence of, of you know, you know, we, we've talked previously about the entire reason that ransomware has has come into existence, uh, whether it be encrypting malware or exfiltrating and holding that data for ransom. It's the ability to get paid thanks to cryptocurrency, which has you know made that practical from from a from an underworld standpoint. But the sanctions against Russia. Conti's original proclamation that they were standing with, with, with Russia essentially cut them off from extra Russian payment of cryptocurrency into them. And that set them on a multi-month course to, to basically kill Conti off while continuing to function as a viable uh, ransomware organization learning from the mistakes they'd made before, changing their structure, and probably, apparently, changing the nature of, you know, what they do maliciously. Mm. Well, they're not fooling anyone, okay? That's the truth. We know better. Uh, Not so cool was the news of last week's LastPass breach announcement, which, as I mentioned before, overwhelmed my Twitter DMs. Um, so I wanted to lead with this because so many of our listeners, myself included, are using LastPass. Um, so I had, as a consequence, also received an email from LastPass. The current LastPass CEO, and I, I say current because it's been, <laughs> it's been jumping around somewhat recently, a guy named uh, Karim Tuba had the following to say in their online blog posting, which echoed the email that he sent to everyone. He said, I want to inform you of a development that we feel is important for us to share with our last pass business and consumer community. Two weeks ago, we detected some unusual activity within portions of the last pass development environment. After initiating an immediate investigation, we have seen no evidence that this incident involved any access to customer data or encrypted password vaults. We've determined that an unauthorized party gained access to portions of the LastPass development environment through a single compromised developer account and took portions of source code and some proprietary LastPass technical information. In response to the incident, we've deployed containment and mitigation measures and engaged a leading cybersecurity and forensics firm. While our investigation is ongoing, we've achieved a state of containment, implemented additional enhanced security measures, and see no further evidence of unauthorized activity. Based on what we've learned and implemented, we're evaluating further mitigation techniques to strengthen our environment. We've included a brief FAQ below of what we anticipate will be the most pressing initial questions and concerns from you. 
We will continue to update you with the transparency you deserve. Thank you for your patience, understanding, and support. So note that there's not a categorical denial that anything like password vaults, it's just no evidence of. Right. So I feel like there's we we're not completely out of the woods. That I'd like to know that there is, in fact, not merely no evidence of, but it didn't happen. Um, okay. I'm, I'm, yes. I'm curious what you think about that. The other thing is, I think so, this is part of the Twi- the Twilio breach, that this is a follow-on on the Twilio hack, which turned out to really be problematic. It was be- pretty deep. Because yes. so many people use Twilio for authentication and other, uh, you know, texting. So, 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 of course, we have the, the problem of proving a negative. So... Uh, you know, lack of evidence isn't True. evidence of lack and so forth. Right. Okay, so so the, the short version of the FAQ, I, I don't, I'm not bothering to share it all, but it was basically that there that they believe there is to be zero impact upon LastPass users. You know, no need to change passwords, do anything, or take any action of any kind. And I'm sure they're unhappy that this occurred. Since, you know, I'm sure that they hold their proprietary information in high regard and don't want attackers snooping around in it. But we've always known since I first checked out the technology that Joe Segrist originally designed uh, is that so long as the last pass code that runs our local browser vault is not itself compromised, no, and that's the that's the key. I mean, that's the that's the golden goose. There is the is the 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 script in our browser that knows how to decrypt the local copy of the vault. Um, as long as that's not compromised, the only thing we're providing to LastPass, the only thing they have of ours to lose, is a very well protected encrypted blob of entropy one from each of their users. You know, that's what they hold for us in the cloud, which allows them to link all of our devices together. And I'm sure this is no longer unique technology. I don't know that it was back then. But, you know, though I haven't looked, I would imagine and hope that's what every other password manager also does because it's the only way to do what we all want safely. Um, we know that LastPass uses a strong many iteration PBKDF, uh, you know, a password based key derivation function, which runs in our local browser to encrypt all of our password data before it ever leaves our local machine. So you need to have a good, strong password to protect your vault. If you have that, you're as safe as you could be. And presumably, you know, adding any of their other security measures such as multi-factor authentication, hardware dongles, etc., only strengthens things from there. But this leaves us with the question. With LastPass having admitted to having one of their developer accounts breached, should we change password managers? You know, that's I was asked that directly by many of our listeners, and it's a worthwhile question. Um Lacking any additional information, and no additional information is available at this point, I think that's an emotional decision rather than a rational decision, which 
is not to discount it. I mean, I, you could argue that the human race is here because of the result of emotional decisions. Oh, you could argue um, that trust no one is an emotional decision <laughs> too, I guess, right? Yes, yes. So the reason I think that, that is that this is that we, that we need a rational decision is that, you know, because there's no, there's no factual basis currently for knowing about what matters. To make an informed decision, it would be necessary to deeply understand the company's policies and procedures, like as an insider, and to know exactly how this particular breach occurred. They're not saying. Their policies and procedures would tell us how they have set up the barriers, which hopefully exist, between their developer resources and their production services. Yeah, you hate to but think then you, that it's so easy that all we have to do is uh, social engineer one person and well, then it's all uh, yes. gone, right? And Leo, just look at what we just learned about the way Twitter operates. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. like right. crap. Uh, okay, but but then you would also need to know that same thing about the password manager you were considering switching to. Again, an emotional decision needs no justification, whereas a rational decision is only about justification. Now, I've always been careful to draw a clear distinction between policies and mistakes. Policies are deliberate. Mistakes, well, they're mistakes. When you're an employer, for example, and this is the example you and I have often used, Leo, you know, and an employee screws up, do you fire them? Because they screwed up? Or do you consider that they made a mistake and have learned a valuable lesson from it? You know, if as a consequence of having made a mistake, they're now a better and more valuable employee, why give them to your competition? So, you know, unfortunately, we don't know enough about the inner workings of LastPass to make an informed decision about switching. You know, should we now be more or less afraid? How does their actual policy and behavioral security after this incident compare to the actual security available elsewhere? Well, and there's an interesting uh, comparison because uh, it's believed that the same nation state hacker who did the Twilio attack, uh, we know DoorDash was attacked by the same guy. They say yes. Yep. Uh, but Octus, uh, Signal, uh, and LastPass all, all reach roughly the same time using similar social engineering attacks. So it, but who, the one who wasn't but was attacked was Cloudflare. Remember this? You had this story last week, I think. They use YubiKeys. And because they use strong security, even the, even that the social engineering attack worked, it didn't compromise them. Yeah. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's the kind of thing I'd like to see from LastPass. Yes. Right. And, and, and in his note, he was non-committal i mean what he wasn't specific he talked about you know increasing their security and tightening their boundaries and things it's like okay uh again it so 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 we have we have an example but again to to make a change you need to know about where you're changing to just as much as you need to know about where you're changing from so you know if LastPass learned a valuable lesson that's great but I have no idea, and neither does anyone else. Their track record is all we really have to go on, and it's been good so far because the security architecture is good 
and it's the security architecture that I'm relying upon. At the same time, as I said, presumably everybody else's security architecture is equally sound because none of this should be rocket science anymore. Would you, you recommend know, if I were... changing your LastPass password at this point? Would that be a reasonable response rather than changing no. your password manager? No, no, no. I don't see how that has any effect okay. because okay. because it's the password which is used only locally right. to encrypt the blob which we send there. They don't have access to that, or nor they do they need it. They they never have. They right. don't want it. Right. And that was you know Joe's original con- you know his original concept. So yeah. if I were starting out today. All other things being equal, I would probably choose Bitwarden. Uh, you know, being Our open sponsor, source. We got to say. Uh, yes. That's and, not why you're being, choosing them, I'm sure. <laughs> no. And in fact, you know, being open source, I'd be able to do the same sort of security architecture right. vetting right. that I once did with LastPass's designer, Joe Segrist. Right. As we all know, as you, and as you just said and reminded us, Bitwarden is currently a sponsor of the Twit Network, and I think that's great. Though it's worth noting that LastPass had never been a sponsor here at the time I chose them. Yes, I chose in fact, them. it was because you chose them. I think many years later, I figured that they it came was. to us. Yeah, yeah. You know, I chose them because Joe was more open than everyone else, which allowed me to understand exactly how their system worked and why it was the proper design. It's kind of ironic because if, in fact, what the bad guys got from LastPass is the source code. Bitwarden's open source. They they got that already. Is it right? Is right? And and in a properly designed system, it it's shouldn't okay. matter. It shouldn't yes. matter. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, many of the flood of DMs I received last Thursday asked whether I was still using LastPass, and if so, whether I was now planning to change. Security Now podcast number two hundred and fifty six. I love that it was two to the power of eight. Uh, was dated July ninth, twenty ten. And it was titled LastPass Security. The little summary description for it on Twit says, Steve thoroughly evaluates LastPass, explains why high security passwords are necessary, and tells us how LastPass makes storing those passwords secure. So it looks like I've been using LastPass for the past 12 years, and I still am. If they ever give me a rational reason to change, I will in a heartbeat. And... Whether or not Bitwarden is still a sponsor of the Twit Network at the time, I would probably go there because openness matters. But, you know, so does inertia and the devil you know. So, uh, anyway, I'm still using them. I, I don't see any reason to change. Uh, subject to additional information coming to light. You know, there's never been a, a breach that, that, that affected our, our stored security because of the way it's designed. Yeah. And that's what, you counts. know, and that's really what counts. Yeah. And then it's a matter of looking at the pricing and the features and, yeah. you know, does it, what, what suits your, your model best. I just never have a problem with it. So it's, no, you know, no, no it's reason. not, yeah. it's not irritating me. And I have a very soft spot uh, in my heart for LastPass, not only because of your support and I used them for many, many years, uh, but when they became the studio sponsor a few years ago, they kept us on the air through COVID. Uh, if it yeah. weren't for LastPass, I don't know if we'd still be on the air. So I have a very uh, soft spot for LastPass. Uh, I do use Bitwarden. Uh, I like the idea of open source. But I think yep. there's pretty much feature parity between most password managers at this point. 
Yeah, and and really, it's just inertia. It's yeah. like I, yeah. there's no good reason for me to leave because it works. And if there, when there is, yeah, I'll be out of there like in a hot second. But so far, so good. Disaster averted. Nothing to fear here. Move along, move along. Well, that's why you listen to Security Now, right? Because Steve is such a trusted voice. Uh, when he says something's a problem, it's a problem. When he says it's not a problem, you can trust him. Uh, but that's why you got to keep listening. We've had a great 2022. I thank Steve so much for making it so. And I thank you for listening. And I hope you will be back with us next Tuesday, January 3rd. Whole new year. Whole new security now. Lots of episodes. And uh, whatever happens in the world out there, you know you can count on Steve and security now right here. Thanks for being a part of the show. Thanks to all of our uh, producers and staff who make this show possible. To our uh, producer, Jason Howell. Uh, of course, to Steve Gibson. Couldn't do it without him. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. Have a wonderful, wonderful holiday season. Have a good New Year's Eve. Be good, because I want you back here January 3rd for Security Now. We'll see you then. Happy New Year, everybody. Hey, what's going on, everybody? I am Ant Pruitt, and I am the host of Hands-On Photography here on Twit TV. I know you got yourself a fancy smartphone. You got yourself a fancy camera. But your pictures are still lacking. Can't quite figure out what the heck shutter speed means? Watch my show. I got you covered. Want to know more about just the ISO and exposure triangle in general? Yeah, I got you covered. Or if you got all of that down, you want to get into lighting. You know, making things look better by changing the lights around you. I got you covered on that too. So check us out each and every Thursday here on the network. Go to twit.tv slash hop and subscribe today. Security now.